Do keep your Bibles open and turn with me to 1 John as our passage this evening. We'll begin in verse 3 of the second chapter. And since we have begun our study of 1 John, by way of quick reminder, we have seen in the first three verses of chapter 1, the apostle speaking of Jesus as being from the beginning, whose life was manifested, it was revealed in such a way as to be heard, as to be seen, John tells us has to be touched. And last Sunday evening, we looked at, in the subsequent passage, that Jesus stands in our place as John, in his writing, sought to undo the false claims brought upon by the Gnostics or the proto Gnostics who denied that Jesus was the Christ. And he did this by showing us that through Christ's death and through his intercession, we have an advocate, he says, who is with the Father. We also sought to begin our work working our way through questions such as what does it mean to walk in the light? How do I do it? How do I know if I'm doing it? What is God asking of me? Possibly even how do I know I'm saved? And tonight we're going to continue along in a similar trajectory as we see here the Apostle John appearing to quote the opposition in a handful of verses when he says, he who says, he who says, Remember, most historians identify the opposition, as I've already said, as Gnostics. And as such, they, they placed a premium on knowledge, but it was not the type of knowledge acquired in public schools, nor in their textbooks. No, theirs was more like the evolutionary geologist who claimed trillions upon trillions upon, we know, trust us, trillions of years ago, the Gnostics' knowledge was more of the speculative or mystical knowledge. Yet at the same time, they also disapproved the body and the physical world because to them the body and its needs were either barricades to true spiritual progress or insignificant altogether and therefore do with it what you will. Nonetheless, knowledge was thought to be vital, but it was knowledge or familiarity unrelated to one's moral conduct. The Gnostics taught a religion that was utterly divorced from ethics. And this wasn't uncommon in the ancient world. They weren't alone. You know, this practice of religion being one thing, but morality and its outworking, how it played itself out being something entirely different. And, and also keep in mind that these people were professing Christians. They are or were members of the church to which John is writing to. So this is who John is dealing with. These folks, these are the ones he's up against. So before we look at God's word together this evening, let's pray and let's ask the Lord for his help and his blessing. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, it's an incredible honor and an incredible joy to be in your presence with your people on this your day, a day that you have set apart for rest and for gladness, a day that you have given to your people for building up in the faith. Lord, would you come now as we attend closely to your word this evening? Would you lead and guide us by your strength? And would you help us to understand that which you sent your servant, the Apostle John? You sent him to, to write to us here in 1 John chapter 2, that we might know the truth of the gospel better and that we might walk worthy of it. Hear this prayer in accordance to your wisdom by the enlightening of the Holy Spirit. We make all the riches of the unsearchable grace of Christ known to our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. John has already argued in chapter 1, verse 6 through chapter 2, verse 2, that the issue is not perfection, nor is it the denial of one's sin. 
In the life of the believer, rather, it's that sin no longer has an inescapable grip on your life, which results, he says, in the the total reorienting of one's attitude, of one's priorities, of one's affections. Redemption in Christ does not remove one's sin nature or characteristics that flow from it, yet it is the Spirit who replaces or provides a new set of characteristics, a new set of characteristics that can currently exist in the believer. And these being those fruits, as Pastor Dodds has worked our way through in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, as opposed to the previous deeds of the flesh. In the next four verses, beginning in chapter 2, they help us to see that walking like Christ, that is living within the reality of, of one knowing the Father, if you walk like the Son, living within this reality will produce said fruit. These being the evidences of those in Christ who walk in the light by keeping God the Father's commandments. And the apostle confidently continuing to take up the the certain claims made by his opponents, he responds now in chapter 3 by showing that they are incompatible with certain ways of life. He says in verse 3, now by this we know that we know him if we do what? If we keep his commandments. And he goes on into verse 4 and says, he who says I know him and does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And he says the truth is not in him. Howard Marshall notes the Christian's relationship to God, which was expressed earlier in terms of fellowship with him, with God, is now spoken of as a knowledge of God living in him. And what Marshall is saying, and more importantly what the Apostle John is saying, is that these commands are those of which the believer ought to fulfill. The believer ought to fulfill these commands. And he does that through recognition of sin. Once you've recognized it, you deal with it. You deal with it and you grow in grace. Listen to how the divines worded it in the answer to the larger catechism, question 75, what is sanctification? What is sanctification? They write, sanctification is a work of God's grace, whereby they whom God has before the foundation of the world chosen to be holy are in time, through the powerful operation of the Spirit applying the death and resurrection of Christ unto them, renewed in the whole man after the image of God, having the seeds of repentance unto life and all other saving graces put into their hearts. And those graces so stirred up, increased, and strengthened as that they more and more, they conclude, die unto sin and rise unto newness of life. So recognizing, further seeking the aid of the Spirit to recognize unknown sin, then once it's recognized again, repenting of it, is the pattern set forth in Scripture to grow in Christ-likeness, to grow in righteousness. And John here combats the Gnostics' view of knowledge, who argued that knowledge was just a religious experience that could be attained but had no relationship to moral behavior, i.e., sin was not a barrier to fellowship with the triune God. It wasn't a barrier. And John, right out of the gate, he says, it's obedience. It's not your feelings, surely not. It's not your emotions, both subjective, mind you, nor some mystical experience. Rather, it's obedience to the commands of God that the apostle says to assure the readers of this letter that that this, obedience to the commands of God, this is how the Christian can be confident before God. Confidence... Says M.M. Thompson comes from knowing what God asks of us. Confidence comes from knowing of what God asks of us. 
and knowing that our aim is to live continuously in this conformity with God's standard. Knowledge of God is obedience to his commands. And he says what flows from that obedience is the ability to recognize or discern according to his word. Not your own standard of living, but to God's word. How God expects this knowledge to be lived out in your own life and the lives of his people. For instance, in Hosea chapter 4, verse 1, when the prophet Hosea complains of the lack of knowledge of God in the land, he complains and immediately follows this observation up with evidence. In verse 2, by swearing and lying, he says, killing and stealing and committing adultery, these people break all restraint. He says, with bloodshed upon bloodshed. To know God thus involves knowledge of his character. To know God thus involves knowledge of his character and requirements and obedience to these requirements. One knows the Father if he walks like the Son, the Son being Jesus Christ. One knows the Father if he walks like the Son. It was Christ whose character was that of total faithfulness to the commandments of God. Total faithfulness to the Father's commandments. And like Christ, you are to be imitators of the one who in Matthew 28, verse 20, said his followers are, Jesus said, to observe all things that he has commanded. So John here hammers home this point. One knows God. How? By keeping his commandments. One knows God by keeping his commandments. Obeying the commands of God is not a test that we must pass in order to gain knowledge of God. It's not a prerequisite of knowing God or a condition that must be fulfilled in order to come to know God, writes one commentator. He says, rather, obedience is the manifestation. It's the manifestation of evidence. It's how one is known to know God. We see it. And if we can think back to to last week, recalling how the apostle explained that though humankind is fallen, men and women are fallen in Adam, If you confess your sins, God is faithful and he is just to forgive you your sins. And in doing that, he cleanses you from all unrighteousness. So when you are walking like the sun, you do what? You recognize that you're sinning. You recognize that you're sinning and you seek the Father's forgiveness, knowing that Jesus, as we saw last week, is the propitiation for your sins. Thus, John is not saying that obedience or obeying the commands of God means that you're doing this perfectly. Far from it, right? If you could, there, if you could live without sinning, there would be no need for the propitiation that is Jesus Christ. Again, in, in a lot of ways, I think that the temperance movement is an example here. This movement morphed into prohibition, lasting from 1920 to 1933. The law under the 18th Amendment prohibited the production, the importation, the transportation, the sale of alcoholic beverages. Beginning where? Do we know? The Protestant church. The temperance movement urged moderation. And in urging moderation, it encouraged folks to help one another to resist that temptation. Then presupposing ultimately that no one could resist on their own the temptation to indulge in any libations. And therefore, the only way to do so was to completely ban it outright. Altogether, it's gone. That's one temptation, right? One temptation resisted. Check it off the list. Where's the pilgrimage here? 
How does one grow in sanctification in a world where obedience is mapped out to the very last detail for the purposes of checking off your obedience list? Obeying God, friends, is not an outright prohibition. John is not saying fundamentalism is the answer. No, on the contrary. He's saying that the sort of people that God wants are those who help to conform themselves to the very character of God. And like a child who knows his parents' expectations, who knows them well, and out of love and respect, that child does what? He seeks or she seeks to honor the parents' expectations. This is how one's knowledge of God expresses itself, not simply by obeying or else. Let's take away every temptation. Then they'll obey. You're left with nothing but obedience without ever getting to the matter, the heart. This is why John is so concerned to remind you that knowledge of God expresses itself in obedience. Knowledge of God expresses itself in obedience, and obedience is always measured by concrete actions, like service to others. And we'll get to this theme later on in tonight's text, but it's, it's seen through service to others. It's extremely personal, and you see it expressed often, often namely, every Lord's Day, in prayer and in worship of God. Those who know God live according to the way God prescribes, and it really is that simple. Those who know God live in a way accordingly to how God prescribes. That is why knowing God can be, I would argue, best understood in personal and intimate and in relational terms. Why? Because to claim to love and know God without acknowledging God's claim upon you would be an oxymoron. It's a total contradiction, according to the apostle who says here in verse 5, but whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him, John concludes. By this we know that we are in him. You cannot claim to know, you cannot claim to love God, as John said, to be in him without a relationship with him. They're incompatible. They don't exist. This reality prompted one commentator to say those who are in God are those whose character and behaviors are shaped by God's truth, by God's righteousness, and by and through God's love. Those who have God's truth within them and who know God, he concludes, will manifest God's character. If the truth of God resides in you, others will see it. Because it's impossible to separate obedience and love. One's love of God, like knowledge of God, is expressed through one's keeping of God's word. And one keeps God's word through your, excuse me, your allegiance to God. But also, what is John not saying here in verse 5? What is he not saying in verse 5? Again, going back to the example of prohibition, John is not saying that the more you obey, the more you demonstrate your love for God. He's not speaking of moral. That's what I'm trying to get at. He's not speaking of moral perfectionism. Before being married to my lovely bride, before we had kids, I never knew just how much joy could come from giving gifts. We love getting gifts, but when you see the face, when you see the heart, when you see the joy behind the gift of giving, it's a love that you'll never know until you have little ones, until you're married, right? It's the best. And such joy could have never been known before the fact. And similarly to the joy found in the one whose sin has been cleansed by the blood of Christ, 
The love that the apostle means here is the kind of love which God showed in the giving of his son to be the savior of the world. Howard Marshall says it's, it's the sort of love which does not look for personal reward, but for the benefit of the person loved. But for the benefit of the person loved. The cross of Jesus Christ, friends, is the ultimate symbol of love. The cross of Christ is powerful to save. It's powerful to sanctify. And knowing God is to know something of that power. To know God is to ultimately experience his love in Christ and to return that love as kids do to their parents, right? To return that love outwardly in your obedience. Because at verse 6, if we see, what's it say? It says, he who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. And John, what did he do? He just raised the stakes, didn't he? What is he doing here? He's saying that, that the perfect example, the perfect expression of love for God is found in no other example but that of, of the Son, of Jesus' own. Yet before you get ahead of yourselves and check out because you think John's saying that you are to live just as Jesus did, don't miss the point. He's not saying you must be perfectly obedient in all that you do. We can't, and it's Jesus. Rather, your life is to be one of constant reflection. Reflection of your words. Reflection of your thoughts. Reflection of your deeds. And in doing so, it, it demonstrates that you're someone whose heart has been changed by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Again, evidence. This is how we know. This is how you know. From darkness to the marvelous light. I came to saving faith in Christ later in my college years, and, and while it was through the means of grace, it was through the preaching of the word, it was by way of invitation to hear said preaching from the only Christian in my fraternity. Ben loved Jesus, and he believed in Jesus, and in doing so, he obeyed Christ's commands. He loved others, and he was a good Reformed Presbyterian. His blatant love for Christ, it was obvious to all. I would even argue it stuck out like a sore thumb, but especially to those of us who lived in the fraternity house. We didn't want Ben telling us about Christ, but he did it, and he did it, and he did it, and he did it. And, and it bears fruit, does it not? And this is what John's saying is a saving relationship. This is what a saving relationship with Christ looks like. This is how it expresses itself. This is how one walks like Christ, to do as Christ did. One commentator summed it up best, and I love it. He says, a Christ-like walk. This is your charge, right? A Christ-like walk, he says, with a limp. And now in these next five verses, the apostle moves from the, the question we saw in verses 1 through 6, which was essentially, are you obeying God's commandments? Are you living according to his word? You obeying his commandments. So now in verses 7 through 11, focusing, John does, on, on Christ's commandment to love one's own neighbor. Or as the apostle says in, in verse 10, he says, your brother, to love your brother. Look with me at verse 7. We'll read through 11. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which 
thing is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there's no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness, John concludes, is blinded. He can't see. It's blinded his eye. And what I hope sticks out to you here in this passage is the word commandment, which the apostle pointedly uses four times alone in this passage because it must be important to him. Doug O'Donnell notes here John talks about commandment, yet in in those verses, what do we notice him not doing? He never defines it. He never defines it. What commandment? The answer does come by deduction in verse 10. It's Jesus' brotherly love commandment, right? The Delphi, brotherly love. It's his brotherly love commandment stated elsewhere, like in, in the gospel, 15, verse 12, when Jesus said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Jesus said that you love one another as I have loved you. Also in Matthew 22, verse 39, he says, And the second is like this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And what is widely assumed here is that John is writing to people, he's writing to folks that, while not explicitly or explicitly or outly or outright saying so, right, who knew the command he was speaking of, he doesn't define it for us. Because I'm still new here, having only been here less than two years, I don't know what the equivalent to Greenville would be, so I'm going to use a, a Memphis a place. But it would be like if you were to come to Memphis and you asked someone where they went for dinner, and they said, I went to the VU, short for what rendezvous. We all know what you're talking about. And here John's writing to folks who know what he's saying. They know exactly what he's saying, so he doesn't define it outright. And as Pastor Carl reminded us this morning, it is a necessity, as we've seen here two times from Jesus himself, to love one another. Pastor Carl reminded us this morning it's a necessity for believers to love one another. And so John here widely assumed that that was the case, that they knew this. They knew that it was Jesus who gave the command to love. He assumed that. And yet he also, as we see in John 13, 1, he lived this out to the full through the giving of his life, the verse tells us, for his own. This verse telling us that Jesus loved his own who were in the world. Jesus loved his own who were in the world. And in verses 7 through 8 specifically, the apostle is reminding the readers that this command was was no longer new. Yet it was still familiar, which is why he calls it, likely calls it old. As it was committed to them, right? Verse 7 tells us it was committed to them from the beginning. The command to love was a big part of the word which you have heard. We also see this command to love one's neighbor in the New Testament, or in the Old Testament, specifically in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's Leviticus. And I've already noted from Matthew 22, one of the instances in which Jesus quotes it in the gospel, so it's not fair to deduce from our text this evening that Jesus has some new kind of expression, some new age love or something like that. Yet one can deduce that this command to love one another can be called new because it points to the one whose love was most fully manifested in his own death at the cross. Furthermore, it was Christ who both gave as well as modeled the command to love. He gave it and he modeled it. 
Thus it is to be reflected or to be put into effect in the life, in the life of the believer. So John's saying this, this is how you bear witness to what Christ has done in your own life. By how you love one another. This is how you bear witness to that. By how you love one another. The light of Christ shines when your life is lived not for your glory, but for his. This is how others see Christ in you. By how you love them. And I love how John so... so pointedly just tells it like it is. What's he say in verse 9? He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness, he says. He's not tiptoeing, is he? He who hates his brother is in darkness and he walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. He cannot see. You cannot see in the dark. This isn't rocket science. So John comes outright and says it is impossible. It's impossible to be a part of this Christian community. The one, this Christian community, Christ, this one that Jesus died to save. You cannot be a part of this community and hate someone a part of it. It's impossible. You cannot hate someone in the family while claiming to be in Christ. And in the King House, our kids know the only things we can associate hate with, two of them, they both start with S, Satan and sin. Not because we're we're raising legalists, but because of the pointedness that is attached to the word. John could have said, "You, you may dislike, but he said hate. You can dislike many things, and if you are as cynical as me, you can dislike 98% of things. But what the Christian cannot do, you cannot hate them. Hate is reserved for the devil, and hate is reserved for sin. Do you hate the devil, and do you hate sin? Then use it in that context. It's a strong term, which is why I appreciate John not shying away from it. But what choice was he really left with? It's arguably impossible to imagine Christians openly claiming or proclaiming their hatred for other Christians. It's impossible. Yet here he is because he knows his audience. He knows who he's speaking to. One commentator again states that John reminds his readers of the long-standing command to love each other. He reminds them of the command. And he asks here whether those have who have disrupted the fellowship, are displaying, are are you displaying that obedience to the command by your actions? Are you obeying the command? This isn't John saying, this isn't my word. This This is what Christ said. Do your actions show it? So John's not arguing the validity behind whether or not those disrupting the peace and purity of the church actually hate those brothers and sisters in that church. He's not arguing if that is or is not valid. Rather, he's saying that that they're leaving him, their actions are leaving him with little choice but to assume that's the case because their actions speak for themselves. And perhaps this is the genesis of the age-old saying, right? Actions speak louder than words. This is how he knows. So you don't have to say it. I assume it because of your actions. They're not loving. And this is the, the reality with which we daily navigate, is it not? The war, so to speak, between love and hate. The war, so to speak, between lightness and darkness. Yet those who believe in Christ do not, John 12, 46 says, those who believe in Christ 
do not abide in darkness. They do not live. They do not dwell in darkness. To put it differently, the Christian lives in the light of love. The Christian lives in the light of love. And why would this be the case? Because what is true in Jesus is now true in you. What is true in Jesus is now true in you. This is why you love. He first loved, right? John 15, 4, 5 says that Christ is the vine. And if Christ is the vine, you all are the branches. If you truly abide in Christ, you will bear fruit, says Galatians 5, 22, but especially the fruit of what? The very first one we see in Scripture. Love. The fruit of love. And so to tie all this together in and through Christ Jesus, who was the fulfillment of the law according to Matthew 5, 17, only then do you fulfill the law of love, which is what? Matthew 19, 19. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so to close this passage, the apostle, he concludes all this talk of light and dark and love and hate by demonstrating that this contrast between light and darkness is best expressed in terms of keeping the new commandment. The believers must, not should, you must. You must keep the commandment to love one another. It's a non-negotiable. And that the inward love of the Godhead, therefore, by loving him, if Jesus is in you, if the knowledge of God is in you, your obedience is shown through your actions. Do you love one another? How do we apply this text this evening? I've got three points. The relevance, or, or excuse me, relevance of this passage is, in my opinion, it's obvious, is it not? Just take a look around you and see how the world uses the Gnostics' logic to justify the, trans, the transgender and the gay movements. The body is just a simple tool. It's how oneself expresses themselves because it's external to the person's identity that's represented internally, right? Whereas God, his word, informs us that, no, the body is sacred. They're not separated. The body's sacred. And it's a fundamental part of who you are in his image. But this new Gnosticism is not just reshaping or informing those outside of the walls. These walls, a church building. It's also poisoning the Christian community. The commands of Christ are being approached like those who frequently patron the SS cafeteria. Although based some of this today, but not some of that. I feel like honoring a little bit. I don't want any of that. And feelings aside, you know those who will claim that what and how you feel is more important. It's the pinnacle, the apex. Because loving others is of the highest priority to be read, right, and reminded of what three and four, verses three and four tell us. Loving others, it's, it's there. It's the highest point. That if we love him, we will keep his commandments. And who says, I know him, who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. The moral law is still applicable today. We have this yearly almanac that George Grant put out several years ago. It's unbelievable. It's full of Christian, global, and Western facts and dates and peoples whose events corresponded to that day years ago. And we read it aloud almost every day. You know, on the cover, there's two pictures of Christ. And those two pictures, over them, are two strips, two, uh, strips of electrical tape. Why? Because, friends, we don't get to pick and choose. We don't get to pick and choose which commands to obey and which others to not. That's the reality. If you know him, you will keep his commandments. Do not seek to justify your actions 
because it's convenient, or ultimately because you're too lazy to flesh out how keeping them will readjust traditions, sacred things we can't let go of, conversations, practices, or even priorities in your own life or priorities in your own home. If you know him, you will keep his commandments. Secondly, don't expect your unbelieving neighbor to live according to those who walk in the likeness of Christ because they are not held to the same standard as the believer. And boy, I need to hear this as much as anyone else. Ask the Lord for forgiveness when you sin against your neighbor, remembering that God does not command those whose sins have not been washed anew by the Savior's blood to live as you do, yet only in accordance with the Lord's common grace. And look for ways to express the knowledge you possess by serving and loving the lost for the sake of Christ. Remember, you cannot be the sinless Savior. Yet you're called to mirror his love. Do your actions demonstrate that? Make your likeness to Christ obvious to all who look upon you. And daily ask yourself, does the love of Christ compel you to love others? Does the love of Christ compel you to love others? Are you doing it? Even those who are hard to love and especially, especially those who do not exhibit the love of God. Lastly, it's hard to manifest God's character in the present reality of today's culture, is it not? Yet, friends, that is what we are called to. Maybe for you this means remembering that while you are to love the world as God does, you are not to adopt. Don't make the the world's values your own. Do not bring them into your homes. Under the sun, everything is vanity. In a world that is quickly fleeting and whose sin is ever growing, your living is set apart. It demonstrates, that's what we're getting at, it demonstrates this knowledge of God to a world that is severely undereducated. Loving your neighbor sometimes means saying or doing the difficult yet necessary task that might not make you neighbor of the year. It might even take the sign out of your yard. But it will please God. And therefore, it must be done. And John made that point very clear. He said, Christian maturity is made known, it's manifest through your positive acts of love. Through your positive acts of love. Acts of love for those inside the church, so through fellowship. But also in your general attitude towards others. Does your attitude reflect that you know God? Do you love your neighbor? Can they see it by how you serve them, even the difficult ones? That's what the apostle is getting at here in this text. You know him if you keep his commandments. Are you keeping them? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have called us to be your disciples, to be followers of Christ, to live lives of freedom and joy. We pray that you would, as we go out from here this evening, that you would fill us with joy and freedom and love for you and love for our neighbor that we would serve you well, that we would preach and proclaim and witness and testify of what you have done for us and how much better Jesus is. We pray that you would do that for your glory and we pray these things in Jesus' name.